Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. Welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. On our show at the beginning of last month, we talked about everything Le Mans. And this time, we continue the theme with our bit of opinionated nonsense called Corridors of Power. Because on this edition of the Historic Racing News Radio Show, our Corridors of Power feature is the greatest drivers never to have won Le Mans. My name is still Paul Tarsley, and I'm joined by the usual team of Joe Bradley. Welcome, Joe. I hope you find find yourself primed and ready to go. Hello, Paul. Hello, everybody. Uh, Yes, as primed as I'll ever be. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And Paul Jurd, good day to you, PJ. I know you've uh, ebbed and flowed with your choices for the Corridors of Power. Are you, uh, you ready to rock? I'm poised, primed, and going to win this time. (laughs) Jim Roller, you've uh, interrupted your holiday to take part in this podcast, and thank you for that. Uh, I think it's wonderful to actually hear the the birds in the background, which is absolutely perfect. Where are you, Jim? Uh, Well, I'm actually in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, at a beautiful campsite right near the state park. If you've never been to Gettysburg, it is an unbelievable part of American history, and the scope and breadth of this place that claimed over 50,000 American lives will, will take your breath away for, for untold reasons. And the Park Service has done an absolute uh, stellar job of, of, of just uh, putting together a, a great presentation of American history here. And this is, this, this is a great ending bookend. I started this holiday at Watkins Glen hearing Formula One cars around Watkins Glen for the first time since 1980. And uh, it almost brought a tear to my eye. It was uh, uh, to be back at the home church and actually hear real Cosworth Formula One cars uh, running around. Uh, and the, the 1976 Nicky Lauda Ferrari um, was, uh, was really special, really special. So this has been a great holiday. It sounds it sounds good. And finally, a uh, welcome to our special guest, John Hindoff. Um, John, welcome to the show, and thank you and Eve for all the help that you've put together in making all these shows possible. It's um, it's going to be a strange thing to have Le Mans in August, isn't it? I, I, I kind of like this, uh, let's try a different calendar month for Le Mans every year now. Uh, so, <laughs> so next year we go, uh, we start in September, we're now in August, so we go to July next year. The year after, we could miss June out, we've done that enough, so we can go to May the year after that. Uh, it will have a distinctively different um, atmosphere. Um, there will be some fans there. We're not sure how many yet. Fifty thousand cumulative for the for the race week is is what we've been told by the the ACO. So certainly not the usual look at Le Mans, um, look and feel of Le Mans. But uh, with the, there's only a couple of campsites open, but you know at least there will be some souls there to witness, as Joe says, this this new hypercar era, which with a bit of luck. 
uh, and a fair wind. And, and I'm sitting in a fair wind at the moment, but don't ask me about that. That was just what I had to have a lunch earlier. I, I think we're at the dawn of a new era, and let's hope it's one that brings in that excitement and that privateer style of racing that we all, all of us of a certain age, and we're all of a certain age, other than young young Mr. Jerd there, um, that we all remember of privateer manufacturer race cars at the sharp end of the field with potentially peer drivers, gentlemen drivers, formula drivers who are sick of paying their whatever it is, 20 million, uh, their dads are sick of paying 20 million to run two F2 cars for the Scion to race in. Um, let's hope that they all want to come and, and race with Ferrari and Glickenhaus and Toyota and Porsche and Audi and whoever else decides to come and there will be more Alpine of course they'll be there as well in some way shape or form and Peugeot uh, and Peugeot of course let's uh, let's all look forward to Le Mans in February because that's going to be really great isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I might leave that one out Paul if I'm, if, I'm, <laughs> I'm brutally, if, I'm, if I'm brutally honest there's no normal anymore though is there I know there's only no. going to be a few people there this year cumulative 50,000 for the week is what the SEO are saying it looks like it's going to be quite difficult for people outside of France or indeed mainland Europe to get there um, so we just have I think you know we've just got to be pragmatic about this and you know something I learned from my dad um, you just got to take it as it comes and, and make the best of it what do we know about Le Mans guys what do we always say about Le Mans Le Mans is Le Mans and there's nothing like it. There'll always be a story. There'll always be more than one story. It is that type of event. And it is the event for that type of uh, the way you look at it in that, in that way. So it'll be great. It's, it's much yeah, like the Indy um, 500, guys, because I once on. said that they could race uh, uh, Country Squire station wagons and it would still be the Indy 500. So, um, very true. yeah, Lamar is the same. Yeah, it's uh, both of them are events, not uh, not races, and uh, very true. But Jim, you you touched on the fact that you went uh, went back to your spiritual home of, of Watkins Glen. Uh, that must have been a treat, wasn't it? Oh, it was it was wonderful. HSR and and Masters put on a. Uh, a great show. Uh, I was stunned by the number of campers that were actually at the racetrack. And this event normally is part of uh, the wine festival that takes place in that region, uh, which is a huge part of the economy now. The New York State wine industry has just uh, exploded since my parents were involved in it back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s. And it is... Uh, a, a great event. Unfortunately, this year it was canceled, but a whole bunch of folks said, well, you know what? We're still going to go and we're going to enjoy the race cars. And I think it was a great opportunity for HSR and the Masters folks to not only put their show on in front of, of fans who were there for that, but also some folks who who might not have necessarily been there just for the racing. Uh, and they got to see some excellent historic racing, uh, both from the HSR classes and from the Masters which was there not only with the Formula One car, but the Endurance Classic cars. So it was uh, it, it was great fun. It's funny, isn't it? If you roll the clock back 20 years, then certainly people in Europe would say that American historic vintage racing was different from the stuff in Europe because it was much more of a parade than it was a race. But that's all gone out of the window now, hasn't it? 
Oh, very much so. Very much so. It's in a lot of places, it's hammer and tong racing, especially in some of the classes where the cars are a little bit newer. Uh, the HSR folks tend to have some of the newer cars, uh, more late model cars uh, than the SVRA does in a lot of cases. And some of those races really are uh, uh, tooth and nail. I think the event did suffer a little bit on the master side from the fact that it, it bumped up against the Festival of Speed because there were a few Formula One cars that had originally been scheduled to uh, that race normally race with the Masters, I should say, that ended up being at um, the Festival of Speed, including Mario Andretti and one of one of his famous mounts. But uh, there were a lot of Lotuses. Uh, there were uh, like I say, the Ferrari, there was an Ensign. There were, it, was, it was an excellent field with some great racing. And rain on Sunday, which really threw the cat amongst the pigeons <laughs> for some of the gentlemen drivers in those Formula One cars. Yeah, you, uh, you, have to, you have to take your hat off to them for that, certainly. Um, but as you say, it was, it was the same weekend as the Goodwood Festival of Speed. And Paul Jode, you and I had the not very onerous task of showing VIPs around the paddock at the uh, Festival of Speed. No, it sucks uh, being you two. <laughs> <laughs> what was Paul? What was your opinion of the of the turnout of the cars? Was it good? Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed myself thoroughly, especially when I found out what I was looking after because I couldn't believe that hey, I landed on my feet by getting the Porsches. And then I walked around the corner to find I had two very special Porsches. I actually had a line of them. There was a beautiful 550 Spider from the mid-50s at one end. And at the other end was the new GT3 Cup car that's going to be the Porsche Carrera Cup car GB next year. Didn't talk about that at all. Far too new. But right in the middle, I had two complete and utter gems. And you gents should appreciate this. I had the 917K that won Le Mans in 1971. So the uh, Martini livery car. And parked right next to that, I had 935.78 Moby Dick from the Moor in 78. And, uh, yeah, I had a fantastic time just showing people around the cars. Um, we were there to be sort of hosts, but I thought that was a bit boring. So I got a bit proactive and actually went off rounding people up and saying, if you like that, you've got to come and see what I've got. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I like an audience. So, yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. Got to tell a lot of people about two, in particular, two fantastic cars. And, uh yeah, I still can't believe they trusted me with them. Didn't, didn't that GT3, the new GT3 Cup car, go well up on the hill climb, though, Paul? Um, uh, I know it's only a Cup car, but the times that we're seeing in the States, in the Porsche Carrera Cup North America, uh, which is presented by the, the Cayman Islands now, um, it's on a par with, near enough, with GT3s. Full house, I know everything in Porsche land is called GT3, but you, with GT3 class <laughs> cars, um, well, never mind the GT4s. And it was it was Harry King, wasn't it, who went up the, the, the hill. I was I was fortunate enough to be there doing the live television um, for the hill climb. And man, he was hanging that thing out. And I thought that was a great addition. I have to say, I was nearly late for a production meeting because I stumbled upon that as I was going down to the, the Sky area where we were having our uh, our production meeting. And I literally got stopped in my tracks by that very Moby Dick that you were talking by Moby Dick that you were talking about there. You're oh, lucky I, I wasn't there. If you were late for that production meeting, I wasn't. <laughs> I said I was nearly late, Jim. I, I, I nearly, nearly late. Johnny Herbert was came in after me. Uh, which will be as, as no surprise to anyone, and so did Karen Chanduk. He at least he had uh, a little bit of uh, uh, an excuse there because he did have his whole family as an entourage. 
But John, I know that you know, as you say, you were you were in the commentary box for Sky F One, uh, and that therefore your your time just wandering around, soaking up the atmosphere would have been somewhat limited. But I mean, you you've had a kind of high and low relationship with all things Goodwood over the years, but you must have loved what you saw. Oh, no, I know. I've I've always enjoyed it. It's been difficult sometimes to work there. Um, we were fortunate enough to be at some of the very first ones, Paul, weren't we? And, and we, I, I think four or five years, very early on, we put in the radio station when the Royal Automobile Club, the breakdown service, were, were sponsors of that. And, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it's, it's nice to go back after a while. I hadn't been for a while until Bentley invited me a few years ago and I went and did some stuff with them. And that was, you know, you see the differences. I think this year, if I'm very honest, I think it kind of almost went back to its roots, Paul. And, and I think mm. it was none the worse for that. It, it, it was more about cars again. It, there, was, there was a danger that it was getting to look a bit like a county show. And, you know, kiss me quick hat and, and people um, with no shirts on wandering around with the, the kids eating ice creams. Nothing wrong with kids eating ice creams, of course. But it, it, it was almost as if the cars and the celebration of the cars became, if not secondary, certainly not the main reason for being there. People were wandering around looking at new cars. and It was almost like a motor show rather than a celebration of, of some of the older cars. I think we got back to basics a little bit this year. And I think the, the Duke of Richmond should be commended. For, for what he's done to get that on this year and how it was put together at such short notice. It was pretty pretty weird walking around in a crowd where the only people that were wearing masks were us from Sky Sports because we had to wear them in the TV compound and we couldn't be bothered to take them on and off. Well, that's a, that's a whole, whole, different, whole different story. And, and from my point of view, the competitive part of it, and I know that's not why everybody goes, but it was why I was there. So it was lovely for me this year to have a, a hill climb where we didn't know who was going to win. There was not one big favourite, as there often has been down through the years. And we, what we had was a proper, proper battle in that hour, hour and 15 minutes of competition on Sunday. And congratulations to fellow North East, now he comes from the wrong side of Two Rivers, Bob Bell, um, and, uh, and the, the beautiful new McLaren 720. XXX, PY, whatever it was. Um, <laughs> he, he, he really did a good job. And, and the top four or five were all smashing, and Travis Pastrana missed out by milliseconds. Uh, no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, Paul. And, and uh, to be honest, as I say, I think just getting those type of events up and running um, is, is super important. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think, yeah, we didn't have the manufacturers there in any numbers this year. Jaguar Land Rover were there in, in strength, but not many others. Um, certainly those crafty shops selling silk scarves or shoes or handbags were were not there. Um, probably many of those have gone by the wayside over the last 18 months. But I, I think it... Yeah, it, it wasn't any the worse for that, and I completely agree with you about about the efforts that the Goodwood people put on, um, that I go for the cars and drivers, as you do, and that for me, the high spot of the whole event was being part of a very select gathering on the Thursday night to sit with for an hour to hear Roger Penske reflect on his life in motorsport, and um, that... 
that man has charisma by the bucketful. I mean, that he just walks in the room and he's there, you know, that, that he, he fills the room with his charisma. He employs 60,000 people. Yeah. And, and you know, he's, he's just such a, a huge, huge fan of everything he does. <laughs> the, the richest man that I've ever come across in, in all my life, and he was asked about um, whether he would ever go Formula One, and he said, no, it's too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was was good. But he said he was very interesting in, in, interesting talking about Le Mans yeah. because he says that is the one bit in his motorsport life that is unfinished business. Yeah, and, you know, he's got the opportunity now running the WEC for Porsche as as well as the IMSA programme with the Multimatic cars, uh, with what we expect to be the 4-litre V8 engine in that, possibly in the Audi uh, as well. I, I I mean, one thing about Roger, and, and Jim knows this probably better than anybody, Roger's been pretty canny down through the years. If Roger says something's too expensive, he's, he's saying it, Jim, not because he couldn't afford to put his hand in his pocket and do it, but he, will, he, he won't do that. He, what he means is it's not a proper business proposition. He doesn't think he can get somebody else to pay for it. Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly right. And the thing that people always need to remember is that Roger Penske is a modern American industrialist. He yes. is... A business mogul, his vocation is those businesses that employ 60,000 people. His avocation is motorsports, and that is his passion and love, and John is spot on. It isn't too expensive for Roger Penske. It just doesn't make business sense to Roger Penske. Yeah, Yeah, I absolutely agree. It was interesting hearing him say that the last time that he was – at Goodwood was in the early 60s when he was driving a Ferrari 250 GTO <laughs> and that that was entered by Maranello concessionaires who for the, those of us based in the UK will know that they're based in Egham, south of London and he said it's a lovely symmetry that Marinello Concessionaires is now part of the Sitna Group, yep. which we own. That's good stuff. But, um, Hang but on a yeah. second. Roger Penske owns the Sitna Group. Yeah. You, yes. Just remind yeah. me of that. Okay, I have some work. I have some work to do with Mr. Penske. <laughs> good luck with that. Regarding right. a certain Porsche and uh, um, a waiting list that I'm on at the moment at one of his dealerships. <laughs> I, I, th- I think if we all stop talking now, we can hear the cogs whirring in John's head. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll but be all... pleased to know that I am sitting outside with a nice glass of Loire Red. Uh, yeah, a little boy. bit of chilled on, um, given what we're going to be talking about later on. So I, I know Mr. Nice. Roller will, uh, will appreciate nice. that. Nice. Yes, I, I would like. I would like to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, we're recording this eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> the historic racing news radio show. I think every form of motorsport has been hit to a greater or lesser extent by the pandemic over the last eighteen, nineteen months, and that 
<laughs> from a motorsport point of view, I don't think that 2020 existed very much at all. And not least amongst those that, that suffered that blow was the sheer hill climb in just outside Guildford in Surrey. And I'm joined by Martin Warner, who is the the man who instigated the whole thing. Martin, welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. And uh, all, all, uh, all, all go ahead for 2021. Yes, good morning, Paul. Good morning, Paul. We've, um, yes, last year was a strange one. We, with the, t- the timing of the pandemic, we were already in full flow, getting the event going and, uh, and about, to o- about to open for entries. And then all of a sudden we thought we had to leave it for a few weeks and then a few weeks turned into a few months and then um, a year disappeared. As you say, 2020 just did not exist. But um, it was actually quite nice to have a year off, actually, looking back on it. <laughs> being, being right in the middle of it now, you know, I sort of dream of the middle of last year's isolation. But um... <laughs> the, uh, I think one of the things, though, Martin, is that this whole event, strangely, grew out of the Olympics, didn't it? Well, yes, um, we... So it was really started by a friend of mine, Esmond Foster, who's, um, who always had the bit between his teeth and whatever he was doing. And uh, he was determined to um, get an event going somewhere in the Surrey Hills. And, uh, and I talked about it. And uh, we, one of the first things we looked at was Staples Lane, where we are. Um, and we, for, some, for whatever reason, we sort of dismissed it. We thought the hill down the other side, which is now our runoff hill um, called Coombe Bottom, was much more exciting, lots of really tight, twisty bends, but also a lot of trees up and down both sides of it, which would have been hard to protect from and really not a good space for a paddock. So we looked all over the Surrey Hills in the area, but eventually we came back to where we first started, that Staples Lane was absolutely the perfect site. A big field with um, a very friendly owner who loves what we do, um, and quite an interesting hill. Um, it's got a starts with a good straight, uh, with a nice natural speed bump in the middle of it to keep the supercars on the ground. Um, <laughs> and then I take it flat out in my twin cam MGA, by the way. But um, <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> and then a couple of sharp bends as it climbs, and we put some chicanes in to keep people um, speed down to something acceptable to the authorities. Um, but anyway, anyway, uh, um, when we finally settled on that hill, it took us quite some time to um, get the authorities and the local parish council, what have you, um, on our side. As you can imagine, going to the quaint village of East Clandon, um, which is nearest the start, and uh, and um, so giving our proposal to him, well, there's only one answer, isn't there? You've got to be joking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this went on, and the, uh, and of course the health and safety people at um, Guildford Council again were horrified, and we really weren't getting anywhere, and there was just no way you could possibly close the road for that kind of event. And then of course 2012 came along, and uh, they, uh, without a second thought, closed our actual hill, or the hill we hopefully our hill. Um, they closed it for the cycle race from, the London, um, from London in the Olympics. So uh, we had another uh, another bit of um, armament, if you like, to go back to um, the council with. 
and they refinely relented and let us do it. So um, it was great in the first year. We was really sucking and seeing it. We had a look back at the video now and you think, God, we didn't really know what we were doing at all. But, um, but at least we got a road closed. We got some cars up the hill. Um, some really interesting things turned up out of the woodwork. And then halfway through the day, it started, the sky went purple, and I've never seen so much hail in all my life. <laughs> so, um, so then having cars, having trouble getting out of the paddock and um, snaking their way up, um, up the hill on the mud, and we eventually closed the event at about 3 o'clock. Um, but, you know, we learnt a lot and had a, uh, and had a brilliant time and... Um, uh, and we sort of patted ourselves on the back, not really sure whether we could do it again or not. Um, but, but you did. <laughs> we did. We went away and thought about it. We had um, the farmer whose field we'd been in on the right-hand side of the road looking up. Um, I look back and can't imagine why he had us in there, because he's not been anywhere near his property since. Um, but the uh, Richard Duncan, who owned the field on the left-hand side of the road, a charming man, and just has allowed us to do whatever we want ever since. Um, um, partly because we raise money for charity and he, he doesn't charge us rent, but we allow him to select where some of the charitable money goes. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a good, good trade-off, isn't it? It's I a very think. fair deal. And, and, and you, you said about limiting the speed by putting a couple of chicanes in things. This is a well, non-competitive event, isn't it? Well, yes, it's a... It's a the, the only permission we could get to start with was to, when they allowed us to close the road, it still had to be subject to the Road Traffic Act, which meant all cars had to be road legal and all cars had to sit within the uh, happily 60-mile-an-hour limit on this fairly narrow little lane. Um, and uh, to start with, we were sort of a bit miserable about that, but we realised, having tested a bit, that with a few chicanes in the hill, yeah, 60s, you know, pretty good speed up there you can have an exciting run and and realize when you've really gone for it when you get to the top of the hill you're still only in the low 60s when you get there so um, um yeah. it, it kind of doesn't matter but um but, it, but it, it, it's been interesting because um the police are sort of okay with us now but um they've had their doubts in the past um but um we uh, they insist on the the uh, 60 mile an hour uh, road traffic act thing remaining but then when they start asking questions about you can't really have other people in the car and that sort of stuff we say well come on you decided it's road traffic act or is it not road traffic act you know yeah <clears throat> so they yeah. kind of leave us alone now we, we got we're lucky that now we've got a few years under our belt and apart from one minor incident we've um not blotted our copy books and they're much more relaxed about us now and yeah I mean, we, <laughs> And that's great that, uh, that that should be the case because yes. clearly people are having a lot of fun. Yes. Uh, that it is about having fun. You Absolutely. have you have a, about 200 cars, is it, that you get actually up the hill? Well, it, it, we have an embarrassment of riches now where that comes from. I mean, we, we started off you know, finding our way and had about 120 cars and then realised sort of mid-afternoon we were done and, uh, and then we pushed it up a few more the next year and still all seemed to finish quite early. And as we learnt more, we, we were putting cars up close to each other and learning how to put a fast one up followed by a slow one and all that sort of stuff. Um, last time we had a 
in where were that 2019 i keep calling it last year but it's not yeah um, we put 180 cars in and i was slightly concerned about that but again we were done mid-afternoon the this experience of our starters and the um and the msa marshals we have on the on the course uh, each year they learn a bit more about getting the cars up there and, and of course this year came and i just couldn't believe the entries i was getting we opened <laughs> We opened on the 1st of March, and although it's not first come, first served, I had had 100 by the end of the first day um, in, entering, So, which is... Um, that is incredible. That's it's very heartening. Amazing. It's heartening, yes. yes. And, and so you've got a, a long, in inverted commas, waiting list of, of people that you had to turn away for this year. Well, What's... yeah, this, this year with... Um, you know, I, I sat down with Graham around Troy Clark of the course and um, and and the marshals and and we worked it out simple arithmetic really that we we thought we could get two hundred and forty up the hill, which I took a deep breath on that. But when you do everything about popping one away every every twenty seconds or so, um, they get three runs. You can do the match yourself. Um, it, it sort of works, but no 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 space for breakdowns and running out of fuel. But that's what we've gone for because I've I've still got I've gone for two hundred and forty and I've still got two hundred cars on the waiting list. Which is... <laughs> amazing, amazing. I know it's, it's it's lovely that people um you know think of us like that, but it, it's um um it, I also feel terrible about not letting some of these people in because we don't get bad cars. They're all really good quality cars that are quite acceptable. So you've just got to choose and. Uh, and really let some people down. And um, I mean, I, yeah, that's life, isn't it? That's, yeah, uh, I had a chat the other day when I, somebody backed out, as they inevitably do, and I thought, right, I've got a space to fill. And I went through the list and I went back and um, picked up this guy and sort of uh, and said, well, we found a space. Would you like to enter your car? And the chat, I could almost see the tears on the email when he came back to you. <laughs> oh, it's so wonderful. I was so disappointed I didn't get in, and now you've made my summer, you know, and you think, Oh, brilliant. Well, I don't done. feel good about that. I feel yes. awesome. <laughs> it, it kind of balances out, though, doesn't it? Yes. Feel, ba- feel bad about turning yeah. people away, but I've, I've even had people offering, um, because we do it for charity, we've squeezed the entry fee up a little bit every year. And uh, this, we were £80 last time, and this year, I mean, oh, what the heck, let's round it up, charge 100 you know. Yeah. No, nobody even better than I live. I mean, somebody in the first year said you could charge a hundred for this. I thought, no, I can't. No, I can't. I think we were sixty quid at the time. But anyway, we've now gone to hundred, and I've I've had people um, offering to pay double to get in. Um, but but it, but it doesn't. That's not what we're about. That's no. really not what we're about. So I, I won't go. So what what are some of the um, the cars that you're looking forward to seeing when the, when we get there in September? Oh God, there are so many. Um, yeah, a bit like you, I would imagine. I've got a very eclectic. Uh, tasting cars and um, we've got uh, one of the most exciting things I've, I think we've got coming is this um, uh, Spitfire engined um, car um, the Handai special 27 wow. did, engine. sorry you did just and you don't mean a Triumph Spitfire at this point do you? <laughs> <laughs> no I don't I, I don't you know I mean a Supermarine Spitfire engine wow wow <laughs> I mean that's going to be 30 feet long <laughs> the man must be mad but um, yes. he lives down in Kent. He's driving it up there, and um, is he really blasting up the hill? But he 
he said he normally does the Brighton Speed Trial that weekend, which is the day before our event. But he said he, I said you can do both if you like, because we've got the the marshals from the Brighton Speed Trial come up and do our event on the Sunday. Yeah. Um, but he said uh, one a weekend is enough. He said so. I'll, I'll, this year I'm going to try try out the Sheer Hill climb. It'll be interesting to see how he goes. I shall love to see it. Um, and of course. Uh, we've got the sophistication of the Triumph TRS, um, the Le Mans car with the Sabrina engine, if you know. Yeah. I won't go into the details of why it's called the Sabrina engine now, but if it's no, no, let's, let's not. they only have to look under the bonnet and they'll understand. But, provided they're old enough to know who Sabrina is, of course. Yes, you have to You have to know that Sabrina was a, um, well shall we say, a well-endowed starlet of the 1960s. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, that'll be a little bit of interest for people who come along to find out why it's called the Sabrina engine. Yes. Um, come along just for that. If, not for that. if, um, if nothing else, yeah. I mean, it's a marvellous car. It's a, a, the underpinnings of it are basically a TR3, but it um, actually looks like um, a TR4. It's got the squared off um, rear, rear wings and what have you. So it's, it was a halfway house, obviously. The thoughts are in their mind with the development, but it won its class at Le Mans. I think, I think it ran for three years. I think, and it certainly there were there were a team of three of them, and um, this is the only one left with the original engine. So, uh, oh wow, wow! And, and you you get some fairly weird cars as well, don't you? Oh, we do. Um, <laughs> you will remember that in 19, uh, 2019 we had the Lamar. Um, <laughs> Yes. Made out of hardboard with a lawnmower engine and um, designed to fit through the average cottage gate. The weirdest thing, the, the owner of that car this year is entering what, uh, unfortunately not the Lamar, but he's entering what I can only call uh, a Formula One car for the road. Um, I can't think of its name, but it's a special. But uh, it looks oh, like looking, Formula One. looking forward to that one then. But yes, um, yes, yes. Really fun. The thing is, that we've got, got a tuck tuck entered. I mean, the sense of humour we have, so... Uh. Yeah, absolutely. It, <laughs> but but they, it's not just about a parade of cars going up the hill all the time because there is an awful lot going on on the show field anyway. I mean, for a start, you've got all of the cars are there. I know that you always encourage all of your entrants to talk to members of the public about the cars and show them around and let the kids sit in them if they can. And those yeah, sorts exactly. Of things. Yeah. I mean, it's something we, um, you know, we've learned a little bit as we go along and, and um, it's, you suddenly realize that you've got a relaxed and open atmosphere and the, and the owners, I mean, if you're the sort of chap who brings your car along and puts a red rope around it and, doesn't anybody near it? We are not really at the right event. Um, we're just not. I love, love it. Love it, Martin. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you, but you realise that uh, uh, one of the early years, this chap came along with a lime green Lamborghini. It was brand new. He'd only just got it, and it was a super thing to see in in our, um, in our paddock. And at the end of the day, he came over to me with a with a bucket with a couple of hundred quid in it, and um, and I said, well, "Thank you very much." But what's that about? And he said, "Well, I realised everybody was standing next to my car and taking pictures, and there weren't two people with their children." And I said, "Well, if you like to see your children in it, put some money in that bucket because it's all for charity here." Wow! And and he had done brilliantly well, and and of course. 
you can sometimes, without any reason, have a certain opinion of a guy with a brand new Lamborghini. But, um, but I realised this was such a decent chap to have this beautiful yeah. car and to throw it open to all and sundry to sit in it. And of course, if you're a young kid and you've just gone to a field in Surrey and you sat in a Lamborghini and then you watched it blast up the hill, I mean, it's something you'll never forget. You know, talking, so that, of, talking of supercars, Martin, mm-hmm. um, you had last, I was going to say last year, last time, and um, have again this year um, a very special course car. Oh, yes. Um, we, we were... McLaren are fairly close to us. We would be their nearest event um, with them in Woking. In fact, from the top of the hill, you could probably see their um, their factory. So, um, obviously, they were a target for me and send them emails, never get a reply, um, even though I've met Ron Dennis before and been around the factory and all that sort of stuff, but I couldn't get anything out of them. Anyway, friend of a friend of someone on our committee finally got them to respond to an email last year and and they said well we're not getting involved with the event but um we'll send a driver over with a course car and he can run your clerk of the course up and down the hill all day um we thought that's fantastic i said we um we'll move forward with them thank you very much because three days before graham ranch or our clerk of the course phoned up and said i'm really sorry he said the um uh the driver can't make it and um I said, oh, dear, well, never mind, we'll sort something out. He said, yeah, but the other thing, I said, can, can you come and pick the car up on Thursday? <laughs> <laughs> so Graham said, I'm just telling, I'm just failing you to say I'm not coming to the event, I'm going to the south of France. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really good of them, that was really good of them. And then, and then of course, late afternoon, um, uh, Kenny Brack turns up, straight from the airport. They sort of said, we've got a car down at this um, Surrey Hill Climb, uh, Sheer Hill Climb, you'd better go and have a look, so... He turned up and showed us how the car should really be driven. Um, it was great to have him on site. Um, and um, he obviously enjoyed himself because this year he's bringing his family. And um, McLaren, through one of through Jardines, one of their dealers, are, are putting, I think, six cars on display. And they've organised for, I think, about 20 owners to come along with their car. So we're going to have a huge display of, um, of McLaren's. Um, I saw the other day on Instagram, Festival of Speed, where else in the world would you see a car park like this? And there were six McLarens parked next to each other. I obviously put a comment on it. <laughs> Sheer Hill Club, you'll see 20 of them. <laughs> yeah, at least. At, at least. least. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, it's, it's, a great, it's a great event. Um, remind us when it is, Martin. Sorry? Remind us when it is. Sorry, yeah, of course. It's the 5th of September. The f- it's always the first Sunday in September. Okay, and time. people can get tickets in advance? Yeah, um, we obviously prefer that, and that side of things is growing. So um, sheerhillclimb.co.uk um, will, will get you on to buy your tickets. At the moment, you can still buy tickets on the gate, but... Um, Things are beginning to change in that in that way. So, um, you know, we already have um, sold far more tickets um, uh, for this time of year online um, for this year's event. So um, I I do hope we can get to the point where it's pre-sales only because it gives us so much more control on what's going on. We, you know, we're still at the point where we're never quite sure how many we're going to get on the day. Although we got 3,000 in 2019, which surprised me. Um, but it's great. Um, it's, though, though we don't want to be spoiled by our success, we, 
were determined to say to stay a sort of easygoing, friendly event. Um, number of comments I've had saying so enjoyed it. It's like Goodwood was at the beginning. Please don't let it change. And um, uh, uh, wow, yes, I, I, you can't blame Goodwood. It's just the way of the world, isn't it? But um, yeah, no, no, different, uh, different targets, different criteria. But exactly, I think I think that's great. And yes, we'll all be there. I'm I'm pleased to say that I'll be there. So that will be fun. Yeah, and glad to have but, you again. And thank you. And that it was. It's interesting you talking about Kenny Brack because um, he is McLaren's chief test driver that's his title and that he spends most of his time driving very expensive mclarens and i talked to him just a few days ago but for now uh, martin thank you very much indeed for telling us and that we'll talk to kenny bragg kenny thank you for taking the time to come and talk to us and i think probably the first question is that i know you are chief test driver for mclaren automotive but what does that cover? And are you testing and developing all the time? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, hi, Paul. Uh, well, yes. Uh, yeah, we are. We are testing and developing all the time. You know, there's a, a lot of lots of work going on with uh, with developing a car, and uh, um, so my role is. Um, aligning with the engineers and the company uh how how the car should drive and the performance it should have and so on and then then i have a a little group of test drivers including myself where we uh sort of provide subjective feedback to the to the large engineering groups um uh, and and sort of massage um, the package into into whatever targets we might have that's what it involves so it's uh it's both practical, but also quite a lot of, um, how should you say, administrative work to, to you know, communication and stuff around uh, uh, technical solutions. And uh, perhaps we need to develop something a little bit further than, than what we originally thought. And, you know, it, it's um, basically I, I'm a customer, um, you know, with, right. a, with a bit more... <laughs> With a bit more technical uh, uh, competence, perhaps, and driving skills, maybe more than than a majority of the customers. But uh, basically, it's uh, our our goal is to make the best cars, you know. So we are we are really uh, focusing on that. So yeah, yeah, and, and I I heard a quote from the much missed Mansour OJ. Um, who evidently said a long time ago, why do I have to go to Italy to buy a supercar? I should be able to buy it in the UK. And I think McLaren has undoubtedly uh, satisfied that that requirement. And there seems to be a constant evolution of the McLaren range that um, there, there, there seems to be a system which is, constantly improving the cars is is that planned and structured or is that um as a result of what you and your team is doing um well it's a mixture really you know it's uh, uh you you learn from every project every car you do you learn uh new things all the time about the technology and how it uh, 
coexists with other uh, systems in a car and um, you know so so you learn uh, and then you bring that forward so there is a, a development like that but also you know sometimes we may choose um, well new technology that comes into the next model of a car and and we have to uh, develop that so it's a bit of both i would say mm-hmm. um, you know yeah, it's just yeah. to find that balance you know between between uh, the, the trick with the cars is that uh, you have all these systems that uh, uh, that needs to in the end coexist in 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 the car and they need to seamlessly work with each other not to make the uh, driving experience uh, you know sharp and, and and strange so what you really what you're after is a, a linear driving experience with, with a you know a car that's predictable so that you can actually feel what the car is going to do before it does it that way you can push yourself to the limit if you want to go to a track and run it for example mm-hmm. um and so so it's quite involved to get this uh the, the this uh all these ingredients uh to, to to mix them together to make a good soup you know um <laughs> yeah i suppose as a uh, as an analog kind of chap myself um yeah i don't tend to think of the fact that there are I suppose countless computers working on a on a modern McLaren car. Well, yeah, the the whole car industry today is is uh, is very complex with lots of technology and lots of uh, software and so forth. But you know, in the end of the day, uh, we are all humans. There will will be a human driving these cars, and so it's 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 about to cater for the human uh, needs and and feelings. Uh, uh, that that we uh, that's what we try to achieve, but we use very advanced technology to do it. But um, it, it takes a lot of uh, of work to get all this into a, a package that feels good that, to 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 the driver, and but also have the the, the performance uh, you know that the, that the car uh, is specified to have. So uh, yeah, yeah, that's interesting, and and. And clearly, there's a lot more to a car these days than there was even ten or twenty years ago. So, um, I'm sure there's a lot of that. You you spent many years at the very top level as a racing driver, mainly in the USA. Uh, and I think a lot of people who turn up, particularly for the for the big events like Grand Prix or the Indy 500 or whatever, think that the drivers sort of walk down on the morning of the race and get in the car and drive it as fast as they can. And they don't necessarily see the amount of sheer hard work of testing and developing and refining a race car. And presumably you must have done a lot of that when you when you were racing. Yeah, uh, I did. I, I spent, uh, you know, I don't know, three or four decades, three decades, I think, at in racing, you know, in various levels, uh, at very high level. And, uh, you know, you can ask any race driver, they will all tell you that you can't win a race without a good car, you know. Um, so, but it's not only about being, having a fast car, you you have to have a predictable car. So in racing, you know, you work with uh, the chassis dynamics, shock absorbers, uh, uh, you know, torsion stiffnesses, aerodynamics, you work with the engine engineers to get the torque right, to get the power. 
um, gearbox people, you, you develop tires, you, you, you work with the whole concept. And as you know, in racing, a tenth or two overlap can mean that you're first or, or, or fifth on the grid, you know. Yeah. So it's really is uh, you really have to pay attention and develop your senses to really feel what um, each system does. But you also have to develop a sense of, okay, what what will this mean when we all when we put all these systems together at the end? You can't look at it through one hole in the sieve. You have to look through all the holes in the in 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 the sieve. You know to to be able to see the uh, yeah beyond where you are now. So that's what you train. That's what you do develop when you're in racing, and that's what. Um, uh, that's what I use in my role at McLaren, and that's also what uh, my other drivers uh, um, use. So, and and you find that this subjective feedback is actually very accurate, um, you know. And and so, uh, you know, it, it's a it's a the other part of this is the the objective uh, uh, feedback, which means measuring it for real, so that engineers can look at graphs and stuff like this. And the big challenge in racing and also road cars is to is to have the objective measurements correlate with the subjective and not the other way around, because it is humans who drives these cars in the end. It's not computers. That's interesting. It's a, a very interesting thought. And I gather from what you're saying there that when you were racing, you enjoyed the testing and development side of, of the car. I, I did because uh, otherwise I couldn't win. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, so you, you put it this way, you, you have to, otherwise you can go home. The Historic Racing News Radio Show. And now it's time for our piece of opinionated nonsense that we call the Corridors of Power. Each month we choose a different subject and each of our panellists makes three nominations to explain why they have made their choices. At the end of it all, I have the impossible decision to make. I have to declare a winner. This time, it's the greatest driver never to have won Le Mans. There are very few supplementary regulations for this. In fact, there's only one, that each nominee must have competed at Le Mans at least once and never won overall. So let's get the first cab off the rack. Paul Jurd, who's your first nominee and why? Okay, well, my first nominee is really, let's focus on what the question is here. You said greatest drivers never to win Le Mans. So by definition, it has to be someone who really, truly was a great driver. And I'm going for a driver who raced and won in a wide variety of disciplines at the very highest level. And surely for me, that has to be Jim Clark. Now, he only did Le Mans three times and was never actually really in a car that even had a shot of winning. You know, he debuted in 1959, and that was actually only his second race outside the UK. He'd been to Spa the year before and not enjoyed it. <laughs> and, and I, I saw that. that. Like, yeah, well, well, there's a good reason. There's a good reason. He, did, he was offered to, uh, to drive, uh, to be taken around and shown the lines by Jack Fairman, who then spent most of the lap pointing out who'd died where. <laughs> 
which you just thought, you know, which I literally I found read that yesterday. I'd never heard that one before, but apparently that is why Jim Clark was never a fan of Spa. It sort of turned him against it from day one. But I think he had numerous wins there. So one of those things. But basically, he debuted in 1959, and that was actually quite interesting because that was also his first encounter with Colin Chapman. He was driving for the Border Reavers team, and they did a lot of preparation work on their Lotus Elite. Only for the factory to come along and say, oh, it's a pre-production car. There's a fault on the back of the car. The rear's going to collapse. So at the last minute, they actually had to jump into a Lotus car and say this was where Jim Clark and Colin Chapman first came together. And it was a 1200cc Lotus, and he shared it with John Whitmore, and uh, they took it to the second in class. Clark then did Le Mans the next two years in a DBR1. So the DBR1 had actually won in 59, but rules had really moved on. The car had suddenly gained a full-width windscreen, wasn't quite on the pace it was beforehand, and they also had the dominant Ferraris to deal with. But uh, in fifth, no, sorry, so in 1960, yeah, he took third, sharing it with Roy Salvadori, who, of course, had been one of the winners in 1960. And in 61, they raced the car again, but it retired with a clutch failure. So limited time at Le Mans, never really in with a shot of winning. And to be frank... Actually, I'm making him sound like he doesn't like circuits, isn't it? Because he wasn't a fan of Le Mans either. Because like many, <laughs> but no, another sound reason, stay, bear with me. Like, like many professional drivers, he felt the speed difference between the cars and the varying driving standards were really you know, not always safe. And other drivers weren't always quite capable of having the pros around them. So that was his last outing. But, but like Sterling Moss, he was actually a real expert at Le Mans starts and gained places at the beginning of each race. So... We're talking here about a Formula One world champion, an Indy 500 winner, a winner of sports cars and saloon race car, saloon races everywhere, basically. He would have been a worthy Le Mans winner, and there are some really great what-ifs. And you know, even just in looking at this, I started thinking, so what if he hadn't died at 1968 at Hockenheim and maybe took the sports car drive that he'd actually been intended to do that day? And at that time, drivers were happy to jump between single-seaters, touring cars and saloons. So what other cars could we have seen Clark in? And he was renowned as a driver with great mechanical sympathy. How good would he have been in those big sports cars of the late 1960s or early 70s? How good would it have been to see Clark in a Porsche 917 or a Ferrari 512? So my first one, Jim Clark, the greatest who had never had a chance to win Le Mans. Okay, and your second? I'm, I'm, I'm sticking with British greats at the moment. So we're going for Sterling Moss and... You know, I think you know, even we, we, we think back to our school days and one of the stories you're always told as a little kid is this parable of the tortoise and the hare. And, you know, for much of Le Mans in the 1950s, that was very apposite because it wasn't always slow and steady wins the race. It was often sensibly paced and steady won the race. But quite often there would be a hare. And Sterling Moss fell into that role quite often. He was the guy who could go out, drive very, very quickly and try really to break the opposition. And so, you know, he was used by many, many teams that way through the through that decade. And again, another prolific racer in a variety of cars. And uh, yeah, I think Moss is actually overlooked for his endurance skills. He's actually won Sebring 12 hours in a 1500 cc Oscar in 1954 as the more powerful cars fell away. And uh, in that era of gentleman drivers, Moss was that professional. And uh, he was one of the few people to practice his Le Mans start and running across the track, you know, jump in the car and fire it up and pull away. And one year is reputed to have gained 10 places off the grid just by being the quickest at actually doing that. So Moss did every Le Mans from 1951 to 1961, but again, was often put in that hair position because he only actually finished twice. And uh, in 1951, his first Le Mans, he actually reduced the lap record by 6.7 seconds from the year before in the new Jaguar C-Type. Wow. 
So those two finishes were a C-Type in 53 and, a, and an Aston Martin DBS three years later. But really, I think it's the 1959 race is the one that summarizes Moss at Le Mans. He was in the Aston Martin DBR1, which was now a potential race winner for the first time. But they were up against the potent Ferrari 250 Testarossas. And Moss was the hare. He was sent out and at the start for the race. And basically, his job was to pull the Ferraris along, force them to go quickly and break them one by one. And right, you know, Moss himself was out by about midnight, but it, the damage was done. And uh, Salvadorian Shelby could cruise around towards the end of the race and actually take that win. So, you know, from my perspective, Moss is, again, one of the greats and possibly the man who was actually too fast to win Le Mans. Good point. Good point. And uh, your third? My third is, is yeah, a little little off, offbeat, possibly not the most obvious case, but... Uh, you know, again, going back to that word greatest, I think every no driver is great at every moment of that career. But some drivers experience periods of greatness. And certainly Ken Miles was doing that, I think, in 1966, when he was on a superb run of form in endurance racing with wins in the Daytona 24 hours, the Sebring 12 hours before heading to Le Mans. And, you know, what happened in that race is now well known, thanks to the, uh, the Hollywood film with Christian Bale's uh, portraying Miles in... Uh, well, to us, it's Le Mans 66. I think it was Ford versus Ferrari in other areas of the world, it was called. And uh, with Miles and co-driver Denny Horn leading before being ordered, ordered to slow for a formation finish with the two other running Ford GT40 Mark IIs and the second-place car being declared the winner due to having covered more distance, effectively. But uh, say so that 1966 was actually only his third Le Mans. He was actually there in 55 in an MG, part of a three-car team of uh, the prototypes of the MGAs, actually. And again, they brought that to a finish and came home 12th. And from then on, he was a club racer in the US, formed this link with Carroll Shelby, when was a key factor really in the success of those Cobras and then the GT40 program. And uh, was there in 65 with uh, Bruce McLaren and in a GT40 when they were having all sorts of problems and the car retired after just 45 laps. And that background and that build up, build up. And again, Miles never regarded himself as a driver. He was an engineer. Driving was what he did to relax. And okay, thank you for that. That's, oh, sorry, um, well, can I just say one more oh, thing? Oh, you got one more. yes. You know, we, we know that Miles died shortly after that 1966 Le Mans, but you know, he was a man who always danced to his own tune, effectively. And I think if you, you know, has anyone else ever seen... It, yeah, like that. I just took a bit of phrasing that one. But if you want to sum up Ken Miles, Google Ken Miles Duffelco. There is a picture of him on the Le Mans podium in that 66 in a duffel coat, a beanie hat, and the most hacked off look you will ever see on any <laughs> racing driver. It's yeah. worth looking up. And, and for that alone, I would love to have seen him stand on the top step. John Hardoff, um you've uh, you've been going to Le Mans like all of us for a long time. And uh, you've seen great drivers come and go. So uh, who's, uh, who's going to be your first nominee for the greatest driver never to have won Le Mans? Two of my nominees are linked together. So I'm going to leave them to second and third. And perhaps controversially, I'm going for a current driver for whom I hope the epithet of best driver n- never to win Le Mans actually gets put right very soon and it, in it there's every chance that it can do and that's because this driver after a less than auspicious start in his Le Mans driving career at least in 2013 when he was in uh, an LMP2 car that should have been on the podium with John Martin and Roman Rusinov um, but was actually excluded for fuel tank infractions 
then managed to get picked up by one of the powerhouses of Le Mans racing uh, in the last decade or so at the sharp end of the field in the right car. And when I considered this, it was about being in the wrong right car as much as it was being how good was the driver and, you know, what might have happened. Although I have to say, I do like what Paul's been, been saying. And I'm talking, of course, about Mike Conway, who has since 2015 been a Toyota Gazoo racing driver. He started his career at Mon with Alex Vert and Stefan Sarazan in the TSO 40 and finished sixth. He then began a partnership which lasted three Le Mans with Kamui Kobayashi and Stefan Sarazan uh, in 16 and 17, which netted him a second and a DNF. The 17 race, remember, was when everything went wrong at the front of the field and we very nearly had Ollie Jarvis winning in an LMP2 car. Clutch problems is what took uh, his car out then. And then in 18, 19 and 20, he has suffered by basically not being in the car that Fernando Alonso was in. Teamed up with Kami Kobayashi <laughs> and Jose Maria Lopez, the touring car star. He's netted two seconds and a third. He has really good background in single-seater racing. He is a, a driver for whom uh, the manufacturer he drives for, being Toyota, they have absolute confidence in him. And his feedback, all the engineers that I talk to, I talk about his feedback. He came out of single-seaters, um, Macau, GP2, did some Formula One uh, test driving, of course, for Honda uh, Formula One, and, of course, drove in IndyCar Series uh, as well before. Uh, in fact, I think in 13, he was still doing it, the odd race in IndyCar. I think he was still dri- driving yes, for the Hall that Yeah, yes, he was. Um, and I, I, I kind of feel sorry for Mike. He's won a world championship, but he's never won Le Mans. And hopefully that's going to be put right. And you can talk about all the conspiracy theories with Ken Miles. There's not exactly the same, but there's, there's a little bit of a parallel there. There will be people who believe that Mike Conway could have won Le Mans twice had Fernando Alonso not been in, quote-unquote, the other car. Okay. So that's your sort of standalone. You say the, the other two are kind of linked. Well, they are because... One of the times that they finished second, they were in the same car. And although they won their class that year, they and and for one of the drivers, uh, and let's talk let's talk about him first of all. Um, he says, "Look, I've got a Le Mans winners' trophy. Would I like to have won uh, outright? Yes, I would." Um, and we're talking about Mario Andretti. Um, Mario, who uh, has been uh, to Le Mans in competitive cars. Uh, more times than I think he would like to be reminded. He's actually had eight starts. 1995 in the Courage, the C34, which he shared with Eric Ellery and Bob Wallach, who's going to be my uh, next submission. That was the big chance. Remember that year was the... Uh, that was the year when all the regulations uh, were, cha- were, were changing. He uh, would have, should have perhaps, been in the TWR Porsche in 95. So that was, a, that was to go on, that would go on to be a race-winning car. But there was all kinds of politics going on with the change of regulations. So Andretti, in some ways, may have lost the race before he even got to Le Mans. Uh, and then he was caught out when he went past the Kramer 
and cra- crashed at the Porsche curve early in the race. Now, they got the car back going again, and what ensued then was a phenomenal drive. They were only a lap behind the winner, finished second, and won, uh, won their class. Because, of course, in 95, it was the GT cars that, that won the race. So, um, quite an extraordinary thing that happened. That was uh, McLaren, yeah, wasn't it, in 95? So, uh, he, I think, when we're talking, and again, I, I take very much to heart what Paul was saying, um, my, my learned colleague there, um, about <laughs> greatest drivers. You don't come much greater than an Andretti and you don't come much greater in the Andretti family than Mario. You know, they've had terrible luck at Indianapolis, and, and Mario has had terrible luck at Le Mans. So he's my second pick. Now, my third pick, I've already mentioned, is, I mean, how can you not have this man right at the top of your list? Bob Wallach, 30, 3-0 times. He started the Grand Prix d'Angerons at the Circuit de la Sarthe. Second, four times in 78, 95, 96 and 1998. Um, six podiums and four class victories. And again, he's a man who was an endurance legend. Four Daytona for 24 hours, but never got on the top step at Le Mans. And again, he's a guy who... I mean, in 73, that was really probably his first competitive car, the Matra. Um, and, and it was an epic battle with Ferrari that year. And he led, but he was in the wrong car. He was with Patrick Depayer, feeling oil pressure, retired. Two of the three sister cars, first and third. Ah, oh, okay, well, you know, I'll come back. Right, 74. Even better. Uh, Jean-Pierre Jassot, who we've just loved, and uh, Jose Dolan, um, again in a Matra. No Ferraris, though. Great. Matra were first and third. Uh, no, because Wallach didn't see the end because the engine did what engines shouldn't do and ended up partially on the track. So <laughs> then he went to Porsche. Uh, Jürgen Barth, 9.36. He moved. Uh, he was in that, that car, and Jackie Hicks moved into it after he'd had problems. Second, second. They were ahead of the car that actually won the race, that car, until they needed a gearbox rebuild, which only took 40 minutes, but that was it. So they finished second. 79, with Hurley Haywood. All right, aging cars, radiator damage. Recovered again a second, and then the car died. And I could go through, I've made notes here, because pretty much every year, 86 and 87, 962s. Wall- 87, Wallach, Jock and Mass, uh, Vern Schutman. What a lineup! Took the pole, late, second hour, piston failure. All down to the su- the fuel supply, which didn't work with the, e- the electronic control unit, an early version of the brain, so the other car won again. And even, even when um, he went into the <clears throat> one class, they couldn't get past the Yost Run Porsche, which was then the WSC 95, and so in 96, again, they were delayed. 97 and the ni- 1998, possibly his best and final chance of victory. He was in the GT198 with Jörg Müller and Uwe Alsen. And by the way, listen to the drivers that I've spoken about there that Bob Wallach was a driver with. He spanned generations at Le Mans. 
1998 in that car. Right, it's Toyota went away, Mercedes went away. Excellent. Porsche are gonna win. Yeah, they were, they were one two. And guess what? Jodmuller stuck it off at the first chicane. They needed uh, floor, they had floor damage and it had to be repaired. So Laurent Aiello, Stefano Telli, and Alan McNish took his first victory there. Look, you've got this, when you look at the entirety of Bob Wallach's career, brilliant Bob Wallach, he won pretty much every other endurance race. He should have won Le Mans. He, he, he could have been right up there with Ix and Christensen, and he's not. And that's why he's the greatest driver never to win Le Mans for that and for the three decades that he competed in at Le Mans. What a story. What a man. What, how can it be that he never won? A passionate, uh, a passionate part there. Thank you for that, John. That's, uh, that's good. And moving on now, Joe Bradley, we've, um, come to yes no no you for some off the wall choices and uh, we all wait with <laughs> bated well, breath uh, whatever that's it my, my my breath has never been more bated than it is at the moment so well, off, <laughs> off you go with your number one if he, if he says well, Warren Hughes we're throwing him off the court I'll tell you that now <laughs> he paid me a lot of money but I turned him away um, I've, I've always found in my experience that it, it's always an advantage to give your evidence last because that's the uh, memory that the jury goes away with. So I'm hoping this will work. But however, I've been stumped by Jim, who's, who was actually last. Um, I remember, can you remember the discussion, guys, when we thought about this as a subject for the Corridors of Power? And, and my immediate thought was, well, that's easy. That's Alan Prost or Nicky Lauda. Um, and, and, and then we had to bring in some a sheet of a book of regulations as to what actual criteria had to be met. That Alan Prost and Nicky Lauda would have been great choices because they were in Formula One winning world championships when you know you started a Grand Prix on full tanks and had to nurse the tyres. They would have been great endurance drivers. Gilles Villeneuve, on the other hand, would have been a great choice because he was a fantastic driver. However, he would have been rubbish at endurance racing, wouldn't he? Because he absolutely <laughs> ragged a car to its death and he didn't know when to back off. Um, he'd been really qualifying yet to keep him out of the car. I mean, he even drove flat out on three wheels at Zandvoort in 79, so I'm not <laughs> sure whether, whether he would have been great. Anyways, uh, the regulations stifled me on picking anyone from Formula One uh, or who didn't. Thank God. So, um, Thank God. Yeah, you still got him in, though. It would, have been, it would have been a discussion on Formula One. Um, however, yeah. you cannot, um, you, you just can't not, you can't ignore Formula One when it came to drivers competing at Le Mans. So my first choice is a, is a guy that was as a, a synonymous with Formula One as he is indeed sports car racing. Joseph at Seppi. Yep. Um, two class wins at Le Mans, but the best result he ever had was a fourth in 1976. Started the race seven times. Um He's two Grand Prix wins under his belt, but he also took 14 WSC wins at places like Daytona, Sebring, Nürburgring and Spa, a place that Jim Clark hated because it was it was a dubious place to race. Didn't bother Seppi. And we've seen the footage of the the iconic footage of, of Joe Sifford in the Porsche 917 in its heyday. That late sixties period of that of that car, the Porsche nine hundred eight to the nine one sevens. When you think of that period, you cannot think of anybody other than Joel Sifford at the wheel of the car. 
And only recently, um, when Jim interviewed Brian Redmond, Brian told us a great story of when he got a seat in the team. And I think it was Steinman who offered him the number a number one seat, his own car, to be number one driver. And he preferred to be number two to Sifford. And the reason he preferred to be a number two to Sifford, yes, he wouldn't have got as much attention. Yes, he wouldn't have got as much seat time. But he would have gotten more wins. And that was Brian Redmond's opinion of Joe Sifford. So I'm going to I'm going to throw Joe Sifford in as perhaps one of the greatest sports car drivers never to have won Le Mans and competed um, as my first choice. My second choice is a bit a bit of an odd one. I, I, I can hear you saying uh, when, I, when I tell you who it is. Um, he started the race 10. Uh, he started the race 10 times. Um, another driver who um, has competed and won Grand Prix, three Grand Prix wins. Um, he was a Williams Grand Prix driver. Belgian Terry Bootsen. What a lovely fella as well. What a great guy to speak to at the event. He wouldn't, you know, you could stick a microphone underneath him at any time of the day and night at Le Mans and you would get an absolute rich description and, and insight uh, as to what was going on. Um, he came second in 93 and 94, and he came third in, uh, sorry, 93, 96, and came third in 94 in completely different types of cars. He was a Porsche driver. Um, he drove the GT1. And this is where I'm going to sort of throw a spanner in the works for Bob Wallach, because it was down to Bob Wallach that they didn't win in the GT1 in 97, because the car was, the car to beat in 97, and Bob Wallach crashed the car. He then found himself in the Porsche GT1, and I mean, that car was just made to win Le Mans. How it didn't was just, it's unfathomable. Um, but how he didn't win it in um, 97, when he was in the car with Bob Wallach, was because Bob Wallach crashed it. And still to this day, there isn't any explanation to that, because... Well, Bob Wallach just didn't crash cars, did he? So that's how unlucky Thierry Bootsen was. And he then continued, late 90s, he ended up with Toyota, works driver in what is, in, in my humble opinion, the finest looking sports car ever to race at Le Mans. The Toyota GT one. I mean, what a fabulous looking car. When a, a car that, that That's what a car at Le Mans should look like. And in fact, you know, I've said this before. I, th- I think I said about the Peugeot 905. Um, if you build that car out today and called it a hypercar, no one would bat an eyelid. The, uh, the Toyota GT1 was such a car. However, bad luck again. Uh, transmission problems with the car in 98 and then in 99. Boots and Bean... Uh, Bootson's luck again ran out to the point where it was a career-ending shunt at the Dunlop Curve. Um, you know, con- considering that you know this is a man that had won some major sports car races, um, Daytona 24 Hours for one. You know, he was capable of doing the job. It was just the luck that this man had was just uh, it was just ridiculous and and, and, and unfathomable and. So for that reason, Thierry Bootsen, another fantastic sports car driver who, who has never won at Le Mans. And, and that's just, a, you know, how that has been, has come to bear. I do not know and no one can explain it. Not even Stephen Hawking can explain why Bootsen <laughs> has never won Le Mans. And he's very clever. Um, this is the one, though. This is, this is 
this is the driver. My third choice is the driver that's going to trump you all. Juan Manuel Fangio. What can you say about this guy? Five-time world champion in Formula One at a time when the attrition rate, not just on cars, but on drivers, was ridiculous. We were losing two, three drivers a year, and yet this man survived it all and survived into retirement. He started Le Mans four times, and each time he retired. Uh, however, that's not a reflection on him. That's just a reflection on the period, really, when you know attrition rate and nursing the car to the finish was uh, a big thing. Um, he's got a record in Formula One that was at the time, you know, considering how many races they did, at, you know, and, and his win ratio or something like more than forty six percent or something. Um, he's won the Millimiglia. He's won the famous South American Panamericana road races. He won the Sebring 12 hours twice. Um, and again, it, it, you know, the word Fangio, you ask a non-motorsport person, you know, if you mention the name Fangio, they'll know who Fangio is. And he, and he was around in the 50s. His career didn't even extend into the 60s and still yet, you know, the next century, half a century, more than half a century later, people know who Fangio was. Um, he had horrible luck in at Le Mans. Um, he was involved. Uh, it was his teammate uh, Pierre Levet, whose car uh, had, was hit and caused the uh, infamous '55 tragedy, and that was what um, was the cause of Mercedes pulling out of not just Le Mans but motorsport completely. And they didn't return for about 40 years, returned in the late 90s. Um, and this is what makes Fangio the best driver never to win them on. He is the only driver to have ever, in the history of motorsport, to have been kidnapped. <laughs> True. Your, your case, Your Honour. A race driver who was being kidnapped because of his value. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, you can't uh, you can't argue that one. Um, that he certainly was kidnapped in uh, in Cuba, wasn't it? When yes, when he went yeah. to race there, and uh, he was co- kidnapped, kidnapped. I was going to say kidnapped by uh, <laughs> by what went on to be the Cuban government, the the communist guerrillas at the time. So yeah, it, I'm not sure it it sways the jury too much, but nonetheless, it's an interesting <laughs> point. <laughs> Well, the jury, the jury shall be the judge of that. Right. How could it, well, how could it not be Juan Manuel Fangio? That's all I'll say to the jury. Okay. Well, uh, we'll we'll pass on with that one. Thank you, Joe Bradley. That was a an excellent one. And um, Jim Roller, you're uh, you're the man who won the first ever Corridors of Power a few months ago when you nominated Gold Leaf Team Lotus as the greatest Grand Prix livery of all time. Oh. So, uh, what have you come up with this time? Well, unfortunately, I've been skunked ever since I made that scintillating choice in the first one. But uh, <laughs> I got to tell you that the um, the competition today is really, really stiff. I mean, good heavens, Bob Wallach, Joe Siffert, Sterling Moss, all of them. Just very, very, very tough to beat. But I'm going uh, to come in in the typical American fashion with the heavy guns first. 
Oh, I thought I thought you were going to say you're going to come in late. Well, no, that would be well. I am late because I'm last, but um, also typical.、Uh, no, that was harsh, Paul. Vic Alford, <laughs> Vic Alford、uh, a、oh. man who was the fastest man at Le Mans for many, many years. A man who, when had the choice of taking the long tail of the short tail car, took the long tail car because. Like his、uh, benefactor at Porsche,、uh, Pieck,、uh, he wanted outright speed. Unfortunately,、uh, that proved to be a,、uh, a a tough choice. He raced the long tail car twice in '69 and '70,、uh, and of course, the most famous car, the number twenty-five car in '1970, was the. Fastest in qualifying, over 240 miles an hour down the Mulsanne straightaway.、Um, he did take a couple of class victories in '67 and '73.、Uh, in a '906 in '67, in '73 in a Ferrari after Porsche had、uh, had quit ra-、uh, racing, he went to Alfa Romeo. He raced、uh, at Le Mans、uh, a, a total of eight times. And、uh, all but two of them, six of them, were with with Porsches.、Um, he was a man who was unbelievably fast. He won the Monte Carlo Rally. He was dominant in the 908 at the Nurburgring and, and places like that. So he did he did not lack for skill, nor did he lack for pace.、Um, and he won at Sebring,、uh, much like we've heard with 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 others. Um, he was a man who, who maybe just for some luck,、uh, would、um, would have in fact had the top step of the podium as、uh, part of his、uh, racing resume. But unfortunately, it, it, it wasn't to be, as he was、uh, a Porsche factory driver for his first three stints.、Uh, then he was with Porsche Salzburg, and then again back with the factory. Uh, once the、uh, Porsche Salzburg was、uh, taken over by the Martini sponsorship, and、uh, he raced with Gerard Larousse in a DNF, so he was、uh, win it or bit in it、uh, at Le Mans. He had,、uh, like I said, the two class victories, which were a seventh and a sixth overall. Every one of his other、uh, races was a was a DNF.、Um, my second choice is a, a more modern racer. Uh, and much like、uh, a couple of the、uh, the other choices that people have made, but for a little bit of luck,、uh, and that would be Nick Manassian, Nick, who、uh, had a pretty good IndyCar career here,、uh, raced seventeen、uh, times at Le Mans. Wow! And, and his. His、um, the teams he raced for were fantastic. He raced for、uh, Hugh Deschanac. He raced、uh, twice for for Hugh Deschanac. He raced for Pescarolo, and of course,、uh, he really、uh, became very competitive when he signed on with、uh, Peugeot in 2007. 2007 through 2011, he raced as a Peugeot factory driver, and. Through the years,、uh, his driving teammates are, are a Lamar Husu, Yannick Dalmas, John Philippe Belloc, Frank Montagny, Stefan Sarazan, Eric Ellery, 
Sebastian Bourdais, Emmanuel A. Collard, Andy Wallace, Jamie Campbell Walter, Jacques Villeneuve, Marc Genet, Pedro Lamy, Christian Clean. So he really was a man. He finished second in 2008, finished third in 2011. He was always, uh, as John has, has said with, with Bob Wallach, he was always in the other car. Um, and for him, uh, he was a huge personality as well. And I think that's the other, I think that's the other thing that we need to take into account when we, when we, when we make this pick as to uh, what kind of uh, person they had and what kind of impact they had on the event as well. And Sarazan was one of those, uh, uh, Manassian, I'm sorry, was one of those people that uh, had a huge personality much like we were saying earlier about uh, Roger Penske, when 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 Nick walked into a room, you knew you knew he was there. Um, and then my my final pick, uh, going along uh, Joe Bradley's oddball theme, um, <laughs> Alan Decadne. Oh, wow. Now I I pick Alan for a couple of reasons. One. He is from the mold of Jean Rondeau, trying to do it his own way. Uh, again, he might not have been the fastest, but he walked to the beat of his own drummer. From 1975 to 1980, 1981, actually, he entered his own cars. Um, they were Decadne Lolas with Cosworth engines. His best finish was a third overall. He had three class podiums, all of them third place finishes. Uh, but he, to me, epitomized the privateer entrant driver. And, and that's why I think he should be included in our list, because he was there on his own, you know, the first... Uh, the first four times he co-drove with Chris Kraft, Francois Mignot, the, uh, the other two times in 79 and 80. Uh, he, he is uh, a guy who, to me, he had that bon vivant that, that, that you would expect from uh, an international endurance racer. And so, therefore, that's why, that's why I would put him, put him forth. So my, my three nominees would be Quick Vic. Nick Manassian and Alan Decadne. Thank you very much indeed for that, Jim. And uh, yeah, you have come in off the wall very much there. <laughs> I uh, I need to um, give myself a bit of thinking time, I think, before I make a decision and before I hear the uh, the case for the prosecution from each of you. So we're going to move away from the corridors of power for a minute and talk to. Steve Holter. Uh, Steve's just written a book about the indomitable John Cobb, and I'm sure you're all familiar with John Cobb, uh, and his attempt to become not only the fastest man on land, but also the fastest man on water, and that he decided that he was going to do that by building a boat called Crusader. And Steve Holter has written a, a fine book, I have to say, detailing the pressures, errors, and egos, which ultimately cost John Cobb his life. Welcome, Steve. Thank you very much. Good to speak to you. What brought you to write about this particular record attempt, 
which resulted so sadly in John Cobb's death. It started, I'd actually written a book on uh, Donald Campbell, and you cannot write a book about record-breaking without uh, mentioning the name of Reed Roughton. And I had a phone call one night from someone saying that a Sally Jocelyn was trying to contact me, and it meant nothing to me until she finally rang and introduced herself as Sally Roughton. And uh, she, <laughs> uh, she asked me a few questions about how I'd got certain information and a conversation started from there. It, it was quite obvious that she felt the the story of her father hadn't been told as fully as it could have done, uh, could have been in the past. And uh, I finally got the job of um, writing a biography on Reed Ralton, which didn't have enough oil and grease in it for me. So that was handed on to a biographer. Uh, but I requested that I stick with the Crusader because it, it seemed like an extraordinarily good story. Indeed it is. Now, let me say here and now, it's a fantastic book. Oh, thank Many you. people will be familiar with that famous photo of John Cobb in the Napier Railton, airborne over the Brooklyn's bump, while he was setting that outright lap record of uh, 143 miles an hour back in the mid-30s. But was his first love always record-breaking? I think really with Cobb, to be honest, if you look at his, um, and excuse the pun, his track record um, uh-huh. for, for circuit racing or road racing, he wasn't particularly competitive, shall we say. I don't think he had a, comp- a competitive nature as such, but he liked the challenge of speed and he liked the engineering challenge more than he actually liked out-and-out competition. So I think he gravitated towards... Um, the record breaking because of that. I mean, at Brooklands, uh, he tended to excel at the handicap races. I mean, he had the biggest car that was at the circuit. So to start last in a handicap and then just go as fast as he needed and passing people without the need to outbreak or um, overtake uh, in a, a, a as in a normal road race, that he excelled at. But actual circuit racing, I don't think he had the competitive uh, edge that he needed for say, Grand Prix racing of the year or anything like that. That's so interesting. I, mean, he, I think record breaking was his thing. He he obviously had a very privileged upbringing. He, he went to Eton and then to Cambridge University. But what sort of a man was he? If you were looking for a modern-day analogy, it was a bit like a, a Richard Branson, but more switched towards uh, cars than balloons and, and boats. But he was a more reserved character. Um, Vicky, his widow, once told me reserved was a better word than shy. He he was one of these people, as Doug Nice said to me, um, they, they excel at doing uh, a performance for people, but don't sit them in front of two or three people because they would just say nothing. So he was more, you know, if I can do a display for people by driving quickly or uh, but, I mean, the thing you wouldn't do is get, get Cobb to stand up in front of people and talk. That just wouldn't happen. So a reserved character. Um, that's that's if, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think if you went to a uh, if you went to a, a build your own John Cobb shop, you would sort of start with. <laughs> a, and I don't know if they exist, but you, you would start with a, um, a, a fair degree of Lord Hesketh. So the patriotism and the money. And then you would add a bit of DNA from, say, someone like David Purley who was the yeah. archetypal privateer, then a little dash of uh, Jackie Stewart for the 
the business sense, and maybe a dash of Alan Pross for the analytical thinker, and then you would have the complete John Cobb. That is a hell of a cocktail, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. It, it was. It was after World War Two that he turned exclusively to record breaking. I think um, first yeah. of all on land, and then the quest for the water speed record took hold. Um, that was when he commissioned Crusader. But reading your book, there were there were problems really from the outset with Crusader, weren't there? It's one of those things, it's very difficult to write a book that ends the way the Crusader book ends. Um, and there's several stories like it in record-breaking over the past. And it's very difficult to write a book like that without seeming that you're pointing the finger at someone or something. Um, Crusader was uh, the concept and design of Reed Ralton. And Ralton's problem was he was so far in advance in his thinking. Uh the trouble with that is the materials didn't exist. I mean, had Crusader been built of carbon fibre and Kevlar, would have been uh, probably the record wouldn't have been beaten till this day. But to be building a boat in traditional materials in conventional way post-war, when these those materials were scarce, uh, if not impossible to come by, it was, for want of a better term, it was nearly a recipe for disaster in that you had the the, the various characters, Relton thinking it had to be done a certain way, Vosper's only capable, really, of doing it another way, and poor old Cobb in the middle trying to um, juggle the two to get them to work together. And it was, it's, it's quite a difficult story to tell without making it sound like there was any one person to blame. It was just a, a victim of its own uh, era, I think, really. Yeah, kind of catalogue of uh, of misadventures is certainly how it reads in your book. It's it's interesting that the world has moved on, and you, I know you've been closely involved with the Donald Campbell story as well, and that for the first first half of the twentieth century, record breakers on land or on sea were really the, or should I say water, not sea, um, were the heroes, weren't they? They were the people who, you know, Malcolm Campbell got knighted and that it would be front page on all the, the newspapers. And then by the time Donald Campbell came along, people were beginning to lose interest, weren't they? They were looking skyward towards astronauts like Al Shepard and uh, Yuri Gagarin. Um, when you consider the takeoff speed for Apollo 10 or the escape velocity for Apollo 10 was 24,000 miles an hour, um, (laughs) even 400 miles an hour on the ground doesn't seem so exciting. And I think Donald Campbell's problem was probably that he was born out of his time and he was the son of his father who succeeded so often before. So it's, it's a matter, again, with the Crusader thing, it's a matter of the time it was in. And unfortunately for Donald Campbell, he was he was just sort of missed the boat until the likes of um, Gary Gabalich and then Richard Noble brought it sort of into modern thinking. And of course, when Andy Green uh, took the land speed record at uh, a supersonic speed, that was something that was, for want of a better term, newsworthy. But the gap in between, there were people going much, much faster, much, much higher and seemingly doing things that were much more dangerous. So 
uh, yes, Campbell, uh, Donald Campbell was definitely a victim of the era he was born in, I think. Yeah, and I, I absolutely agree that he was a, a man out of his time and that I, I sit in our in our studio here and there is a big picture of CN7, his, uh, his land speed record car on the wall so uh yeah i'm a i'm a campbell fan but but nonetheless i think it's it's interesting because there was that that patriotism as well wasn't there and i think john cobb had that patriotism didn't he he did um it's very difficult because i've i've actually spoken uh spoken to people that knew john cobb and when you say oh yeah well you knew john cobb well yeah i knew him but i didn't know him um yeah. Yeah, even his niece said she used to sit in his office while he was working and she'd be playing. He'd walk over and chat and she'd spent days, months um, with him and she, she didn't know him as, as a man. Everyone knew him uh, for what he was capable of, but there were so few people that knew him for what he was. Uh, patriotic, definitely. Um, it was... But I never, I've never seen the quote or had him being quoted as saying, I'm doing it for king and country. Uh, whereas you did sort of get that with uh, Donald Campbell. It was always the reason he took over was because Guy Lombardo said he was going for the world water speed record and taking his father's record. We can't ha- let that happen, Leo. Can we? Off we go. <laughs> Cobb, uh, but Cobb basically said to, to Reed Relton, well, I've done the land speed record. I can't go any faster. How do you fancy designing me a boat? And it just seemed like a the logical and the traditional step after Seagrave and Malcolm Campbell to beat one record and then have a go at the other one. Um, I wouldn't like to say he did it totally for King and Country. A lot of it he considered driving quickly, as he, as, as he put it, his escape from the mundane. So I would step back from saying he was doing it for king and country he was british he supported the king in fact in many of the letters um that i managed to find and quote in the book he often would say you know I, i'm going to see the king or i see the king's not well he, he was aware of everything that was going on within the country and fought for various things and drove a bus uh, to the blitz torn streets of london during the second world war as a volunteer uh, did ferry pilot flying to miles behind the enemy lines. He did everything he could, but record breaking and going fast was his escape from the mundane. And I think that's really what drove him when it came to record breaking. That's that's a, a really interesting thought because I think very often we can look at people from the past, be it Donald Campbell, be it John Cobb, be it Mike Hawthorne, be any of those people and say, what would they be like in the modern world? And I think particularly with those record breakers that they came from very affluent families. They, there was no question of having to earn a living. They just did what they wanted to do. And I'm not sure that those people exist anymore. I think the last one I can think, and, and I, I believe you're sitting in Sussex as we speak, um, yeah. I remember going down to see David Purley um, shortly after his accident at Silverstone, but before he'd really sort of started racing again. And I remember saying to him, um, you know, why? Because he was already talking about having the car rebuilt. Uh, and he said, because what else is there to do? Once, once you've tasted the high of being in the army, being under fire, normal living is, is just dull. 
And he was the last person I can think of that would look at going fast. And say Pearlie was just um, using his father's company's money, bless him, to, <laughs> yeah, to sort of, yeah. to sort of um, get that thing that a lot of people don't experience in life. You know, people that haven't been that close to the edge don't really get it. And Cobb was one of those ones where he knew he was on the limit. I mean, I, the, the, the only time I've ever seen a lengthy tele, um, movie tone interview with Cobb, the only question that he answered at length was, is it dangerous? Oh, yes, of course, he said, you know, if it goes horribly wrong, there's, there's no getting out of it. You're just, you're just so much uh, fish food. And he went on at length to say what what points the seatbelt, and of course, Movie Tone had to cut that because that's not what they wanted on their no. um, their interval news. And that's the sort of uh, the the sort of person you're talking about, um, not the Jackie Stewart type, where it's the challenge of driving quickly as safely as possible. There are some that really do need the adrenaline buzz of just being on the edge constantly. And I'm with Cobb. It seems a very strange way of relaxing from the mundane to put your neck on the line yeah i suppose i suppose it does you know, going back to your david pearly story I mean, that that it's odd isn't it that he he was forced to give up motor racing because he was so badly injured in that accident at silverstone he he made a, a brief comeback but then having given all that up he took up stunt flying with a pit special. You know, yes, so. yeah. what, what, what can be as dangerous as that? Oh, I'll have a go at that. You know? <laughs> yes. If yeah. anyone was born to go bungee jumping with a bungee that may be slightly too long, it was David Purley. Um, <laughs> and I don't, I don't think Cobb would have stretched that far. I think uh, I, would, I would, again, step back from sort of saying uh, the respect for life. They, they, nobody wants to put themselves in a position where they know it's going to go wrong. Um, Cobb, I think, was... Uh, a more cautious person than Pearly. Uh, Pearls, bless him, he was, it was really the buzz of how close can I get and then step back. With Cobb, I think it was more a case of um, this is as fast as I need to go. We need to get this so it's a little bit better and I can go faster. So there's a difference in thinking and uh, logic, I think. But the outcome's the same, isn't it? That's, Unfortunately. Uh, that's, the, that's, that's the sad thing. I mean, Cobb yeah. was was 52 when he died, wasn't he? Um, yeah. Which is, which is old for any form of, of competitive driver. And do Don't you tell think, Frangio that. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but do you think he'd have continued if he hadn't had that accident? He would have continued with something, without a doubt. There was already talk, again, it's in the book, um, that the design possibly wasn't as good as it could have been. And I won't go into detail because, obviously, I'd like people to buy the book. Yep. Um, but there were talk, There was talk of modifications for the next year and a go at 250 or 300 miles an hour if possible. Um, and I think 53 probably would have happened. After that, he would have found something similar Possibly not record-breaking, maybe Lamar or something that just gave him something out of fur-broking and everyday mundane uh, mundane life. He would have he would have continued doing something for a few good good years after, I think. And what what do you think is is his legacy? What do you think he, he left behind for us? Well, this is the the enigma that's John Cobb because it, because he would 
shy away. If a, if a press microphone appeared, he would go and step at the back and let everybody else have their say first, hoping that they'd run out of time. Um, and Railton was the same. So he had two people from the same cloth. They weren't there to talk to the press. They weren't there to impress anybody. And because of that, the the, the footprint they've left on history, unfortunately with Cobbies, his his demise is a bit like Donald Campbell. Everyone always remembers the boat flipping at Coniston. Most people remember uh, have seen the film of uh, Cobb's boat disappearing into Loch Ness. Um, the legacy he's left as such is really only within the family. Uh, it's surprising how many people aren't aware of John Cobb that are motor racing fanatics. Uh, and it surprised me when the book came out uh, to speak to somebody that I have spent a lot of time talking about motor racing in the past to be asked, well, who was John Cobb? Um, yeah. And bearing in mind, I, I wasn't born when uh, Cobb crashed. Uh, I'm glad to say it was about seven years afterwards. But um, it's not that long ago, but the guy was so private, so um, away from being shown to be what he was doing. Um, his legacy is very difficult to pinpoint. There's, There's no... I mean, with Railton, you can see what he's left behind. There's so many patents for gearboxes and drive systems that are still used on modern buses and lorries. Um, the design genius of the, the Napier Railton Special Land Speed Car. But yeah. with Cobb, he literally just sat in the front and drove it. And he, I don't think he would have been bothered if he left anything, any mark on history at all. It's not why he did anything. That's, that's sort of the measure of him. They don't make them like that anymore, do they? They certainly don't. Um, so Vicky was extraordinarily proud of her husband that she wasn't really with for that much time. Um, but she's one of the stories she told me was how uh, Sir Malcolm Campbell was giving a talk and uh, she and John Cobb were sitting at the back until Malcolm Campbell noticed he was sitting there. And then Campbell's talk went to pieces because Cobb would just stare and say nothing. <laughs> at the end of it, Vicky said, don't you think you should go and talk to so-and-so? And he said, I'm not Malcolm, you know. I don't need to talk to people. I'm just here to see what's going on. And then would would go out of the door. And, and most people wouldn't even know he's been there. I mean, even his, um, uh, his uh, brother-in-law, who married his sister Eileen, told me that uh, he would be invited to a dinner party at his house. Cobb would arri- uh, John Cobb would arrive. Uh, they'd have a dinner party. Everybody would talk. Everybody would laugh. John would be involved. He'd be talking to everybody. Not once mentioned mention what he did for a living or what he did in cars and boats. And he said it was only at the end of the evening as he went out and you'd hand him his coat and his hat. You'd think, oh, yeah, you were here. I forgot yeah. you were here. Literally yeah. would just fade into the background, and that's what he craved more than anything. I think Vicky said... If he was at home with a newspaper and a brandy with his feet up, that's that was John Cobb. There's not a lot wrong with that, though. <laughs> <laughs> you could all put up with it, yeah. Congratulations on the book. It's uh, it is great. I mean, it's it's a great read. It's not something that you can flick through quickly because there is so much information in there, which I which I congratulate you on. But Thank it's you. called. It's called Crusader, John Cobb's Ill-Fated Quest for Speed on Water. Um, it's published by Evro Publishing, and the price is £30. Uh, Steve Holzer, thank you for coming on to talk about, this, uh, about it. My it's, pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure.
It's um, it's a fascinating one, and I look forward to talking to you about the next book. But uh, but for now, thanks very much. Thank you. So let's get back to the corridors of power. And Joe, what were your thoughts about Paul Jurd's choices of first of all Jim Clark? Oh, <laughs> that was a tough one, wasn't it? Jim Clark is arguably the greatest racing driver ever and considering he only lives just over he only lived just over 70 miles I'm only 70 miles south of the Scottish borders and the you know, trip up to the Jim Clark Museums uh, something that I've got planned for the next couple of weeks actually um, yes. tough one um, very very tough one not to consider yeah okay and um, Jim that I know that you're a, you're a Sterling Moss fan, and he was always going to appear in here somewhere, wasn't he? He sure was. Um, I think I think I would discount Jim Clark because he wasn't serious about it. Mm. Sterling Moss, to me, is the tough one. He would have been on, on my list had Paul not picked him first. Um, but I would say this. The whole thing about Sterling being a rabbit was not because Sterling didn't want to be the rabbit. Sterling hated running to a time. He did. Sterling wanted to be the rabbit. And so to say that he didn't win because they ought to, ought to always he, he brought that on himself. So uh, that's why I would I would um, I, I, I would discount uh, I would discount Sterling from the top. Now maybe second, uh, perhaps, but. Um, he wanted to be the rabbit. Jim, imagine what he would have been like in the days when reliability, like now, or in the early two oh, thousands. Tom Christian. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. Yep. But, yeah. but but for his era, he, he hated it. I think he, he even said that to. I think it was either yes. you or Joe oh. in an interview yes. that we did. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and John John Ken Miles has become famous many decades after his death. Does. Does he deserve to be on the list, do you think? Well, he can't be on the list because he was a Le Mans winner. So he did win Le Mans. Good It's just the record books don't record it. He won yeah. Le Mans. He crossed the line first. He wasn't disqualified. The car was scrutinized and find, found to be legal. He won. Le Mans. So I'm, I'm sorry, but on a technicality, lovely bloke he is, not, from not 20 five miles from where I am now in, in North Northamptonshire. But as far as I'm concerned, Ken Miles is a Le Mans winner. Yeah, I and mean, now if we were picking the greatest drivers that were screwed by Ford, well, that would be <laughs> that, 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 uh, top of the list. But, 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 but no, that, that was the biggest shaft job in the history of motorsports. And Jim, with, uh, with John's choices, Wallach... Conway and Andretti thoughts there well I think I think Wallach is probably the toughest one for me um, to, to discount I mean you know to me the, the, the he's definitely in the in the top three as well Mario never won Lamar for the same reason that he only won the Indy 500 once he was unbelievably unsympathetic to the equipment yeah. and um, you know everybody taught you know the Four most famous words at uh, Indianapolis: trouble for Mario Andretti. Um, he's, um, yeah, he he a great. I mean, on the Mount Rushmore uh, of motorsports, 
but did not have the um, the sympathetic nature to 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 nurse a car um, like Hurley Haywood might have, or or some of these guys. You know, Jackie X certainly um, could could get a a a wounded car. Uh, Mario was was. Um, it, 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 and this was a this it stuck in Mario's crotch. It sticks in his crotch to this day that AJ Foyt won the twenty four hours of Le Mans and Mario didn't. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's and those two have got uh, a rivalry that is that's that's kind of fun because in in public it's you know all smiles and and glad handing and and that sort of stuff. But but in private, you know, it's oh that fat Texan and oh, oh that little. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's just there's 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 not a lot of love loss love loss between them when it comes to their on track rivalry. So, so yeah, that's uh, uh, that that's that's the only reason I would discount Mario is I just don't think he was sympathetic enough. Now, Bob Wallach, that to me, um, probably uh, if if that one if that one doesn't win, I, I I will I will be surprised. Joe, was uh, was Mike Conway mm-hmm. a surprise to you? Uh, no, um, I, I've got the utmost sympathy for Mike Conway because it was team politics that stopped that man winning that race uh, completely. He was, as John said, he was in the wrong car. Um, he wasn't in the car of Fernando Alonso and he was in such a position to win that race more than once. And it was team politics that uh, negated him. Um Hanged off other choices, Bob Wallach, no, definitely not, because to interview that man was absolutely horrific. He used to scare the crap out of me every time I had to uh, walk up to him and interview him, because you knew you were going to have a horrifically difficult time. Um, and on, See, I on never that had subject, that. I, 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 I never, never had, had that, that issue. That. Oh, I did. Peach. Well, he, might have, he, just, wasn't alike, he just, just wasn't like me. Just because um, he said... F on the air once doesn't mean you know. No, no, he didn't say that. To me. Did he say that to me? I'm not sure if he did. No, no, no he's it's not. It's not. It was the best interview. You <laughs> asked no, for my opinion, and I'm giving it. Um, and on the subject of interviews, and the, the, an Andretti interview comes to mind. Andretti's last Le Mans was 2000, and he did it in a front-engine panels. Yeah. And his first run out on the Wednesday uh, in practice. He first, and everybody that, you know, the world's media was interested in Andretti's words, Mario's words, as he stepped out of the car. And, of course, little Bradley from Radio Le Mans was first in there, wasn't he? You know, barely got his helmet off, handed it to his assistant, gave him a few minutes, drank, you know, drank, drank some water, woke up to him with a microphone, and are you okay for an interview? He gives me the nod. So, Mr. Andretti, would never call him Mario, of course, he's a legend. So, Mr. Andretti, um, how was that? Are you glad to be back at Le Mans? Yes. Um, <laughs> you must be very excited uh, for that run in the car. Yes. Um, so, how was it? Was it okay? Uh, yes. Basically, it was like clipped answers, and it was like, oh, my God, this is... The so, what was fans you were like to interview with you than Joe? Was it? Was it <laughs> So, so hang on, very much, very similar to what just happened there. Heindorf comes in my ears and says, "Leave it, Bradley. Adam Bradley. Keep Adam Bradley." Oh no, was it? It was keep, leave it, leave it, Bradley. Just got. And I thought, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm gonna. So, eventually, you know, 
I said something to him. I can't remember exactly what. I remember I, exactly I, what you said. You started talking about his, his Formula One World Championship winning year. I did. And that's right. I did. And I started talking about that. And he obviously thought, oh, this kid must know. This kid knows his stuff. He's going back to 1978. And he kind of warmed to me. However, that's not the, that's not the anecdote. No. The anecdote is this, right? He was a really tough interview and he was really clipped. Completely out of character for an American driver. It was revealed later that he'd come into the pits because he wasn't due in the pits at that time. He'd come into the pits prematurely. And the reason he'd come into the pits was because as he came out of Mulsanne and headed down towards Indianapolis through those two kinks, all of a sudden, the car pointed towards the sky. Yes. Wales and the full the front end, full front end was off the ground. And then by the look of the gods, it came back down onto the track and he backed straight off and pulled into the pits. So think about this. You've just been out there, right? And all of a sudden, heading down to Indianapolis, through, you're trying to gauge the kinks. And then you're looking at the sky and you think, Jesus. And, and you, so you come in and the first person who speaks to you is little old Bradley going, hey, mate, what was that like? Today? Was that fantastic? Was that fantastic? Hey, wasn't that brilliant? Hey, oh, God, it must be brilliant being back in Le Mans. And he's thinking, why am I here? What am I doing here? How can I get out of this contract for the weekend? Why am I driving this car? All I'm going to say, Bradley, is that he got on really well with me, Dad. And, you know, <laughs> I should have put that in, in my submission. Um, he, he actually walked in, in, I think it was 95. He walked into our, then the Autosport compound. And my dad was helping doing the washing up as ever. And unbeknownst to me, my dad had already delivered a new rear aerofoil um, that had been flown into the to the airport when they'd had a problem. And they had exactly the same issue in the race. He, he spun the car, knocked the rear end off. Um, and so he'd already met the great man. I mean, my dad, not Mario, obviously. Um, and, and so uh, Mario Andretti comes in, he walks in. And the first thing that, uh, this has all happened unbeknownst to me. And he goes, hello, Tony, how are you doing? Nice to see you again. And I'm like, hang on a second, Mario Andretti knows me dad. How does that work? <laughs> <laughs> of course, my dad Joe, didn't, didn't dine on that for any, uh, any amount of time. No, no, I'm sure he didn't. <laughs> Joe, you always talk about how respectful you are and waiting for the guys to be ready for their interviews and that sort of stuff. You simply made one tactical error. You didn't let him go change his underwear. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, clearly. There was that as well. He was sitting in a pile of his own poo. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, yeah. Paul... Um, Fangio boots and a Siffert were Joe Bradley's choice. Any uh, any thoughts on those? Uh, well, firstly, before we go there, I think we've just actually got ourselves a new corridors of power. My most bizarre motorsport interviews. <laughs> yes. Bradley wins them every one of them. Yeah, I had a very surreal experience with a French Grand Prix winner once, but let's, uh, let's oh. not even go there. Um, Fangio, yeah, I'm certainly up there with Clark and Moss of Mighty, but yeah, hard to argue with Fangio, isn't it, really? You know, and again, what what a driver! And he didn't come to race in in Europe till he was in his forties. You know, what could yeah. that guy have done if World War Two hadn't interrupted world motorsports? So, not yeah. can't argue with that one at all. Thierry Boots, and sadly, whenever and you know, I was at a Williams launch once when he was one of the drivers, actually. And you know, sorry, first thing I ever think of with Thierry Boots and his nice hair. Um, <laughs> if, <laughs> I'm not sure what to say about that, Paul. <laughs> I, I just don't feel he impacted the world of motorsport. Anything? How, how was it always like that when the crash helmet came off? 
But uh, <laughs> but Joe Siffert, Seppi Siffert, yeah, fanta- fantastic driver. Okay, once, you know, could have won Lamar, except he actually missed a gear. Right, and if you're going to miss a gear in a Porsche 917, where the valve springs did let you just buzz the engine, basically, um, don't do it driving past your pits when John Wire is your team manager. Which is something yeah. Sefford uh, um, managed to do, I think, in 1970. That's going to be a fun interview going backwards. Um, yeah, I know I'm supposed to push my own ones here, but frankly, if Fangio won, I would not argue at all. You can't have Fangio. He, he never finished the race. He only went there four times, and he never finished. Uh, but yeah, but, in the, in, but in those days, and we've mentioned this earlier on he about luck. They did better than that. Yeah, but in, exactly. he was kidnapped. He yeah, he was kidnapped. Let's give him <laughs> that. It was probably preying on his mind during a long stint or something. <laughs> Lando Norris had his watch stolen. That doesn't make him the greatest Formula One driver of all time, though, does it? No, oh, he was pe- back, back in those days, on, wasn't he? he? People on Twitter would say it does. Ah, oh, yeah, well, yes, you're yeah. probably right there. <laughs> um, Jim, if I'm honest, I would have expected to see at least one of those Fangio boots, nor Siffert, on your list. But uh, I've never no idea who you'd have left out. Um, well, the one I wanted to put on my list was Moss, and I, I was chagrined that I that I had missed him. Wallach was already chosen by by our guest, which to me, like like um, Paul just said, if if it ends up being Fangio, he wouldn't be disappointed. If it ends up being Wallach, I I I kind of think that's not a bad choice. Who would I have left out? Well, I, I think I made it clear, Andretti. But mm. uh, I don't have an axe to grind with Mario. You know, I just, I just think that his skills lied in, lay in a in a, uh, in, a in another area. Yeah. Okay, that's uh, that's I'll really be, I'll be honest, Paul. I, I I toiled with this, and there was a couple of people that we haven't mentioned, and. That, that I think must have been close for all of us. Brian Redmond being yes. one of them. Um, and, Hard to argue, yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah. another one of the great all-rounders and, and never got on the podium, only two fifth-place finishies in, the, uh, in the, 78 and 80. The thing is, though, John, the Story Race News podcast is almost becoming the Brian Redmond show of late. <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. No, neither do I. In, in neither fairness, do I. He, was that, he was that good, and he still tells a good story now. Brilliant, um, yeah. And, and the, the era, era of the great all-rounders. The other one that I almost put in was Rolf Stommelen. Um, only came Ooh. second once in 1979, and he, 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 he won three times in class. Um, and, of course, the, 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 the second overall was with Dick Barber and Paul Newman in, in 79. Um, so that that was very he was very very close to getting in mine, and the third one that nearly got in because I was there when um, he was at the end of his career was John Louis Schlesser again yeah. only yeah. Yeah. second yeah. yeah in eighty one, um, and and I I remember him racing in the new Silver Arrows um, when I first went to Le Mans in. Uh, 80, when did I first go? Nine. 89, yeah. Um, and when the new Silver Arrows came along, um, in uh, and, and you know, took the world by storm as it was, I, I, he was he was still you know such a, a massive part of it. So, though, those I think any of those three could have, have been additional choices to be honest. Okay, that's good. And, um, obviously, the the ones that we got from Jim. Were uh, were interesting ones as we would have expected. Alfred Manassian and De Cadenet. And uh, Paul, anything to add to those? 
I, I would say if if Alan de Cadena had won it, and yeah, you know, I think it was already mentioned, he would still be talking about it. But what an advert for the race that would have been! <laughs> you know, that would have raised interest in the more because he would have made that sound damned interesting, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he just? Wouldn't he just? And and I mean, there there are some giants in in that particular set of Alfred Manassian and de Cadena, aren't there? There are. I, th- I think El- Vic Elford is, is for some reason al- almost a forgotten great at times because, you know, as, as, as Jim said, this is a guy who was, you know, he could jump into anything and be quick. Correct. And, you know, you, you yeah. hear those stories of him in that in the 917 long tail in 1969 where, you know, it wouldn't drive in a straight line down the straight. It was <laughs> weaving and you touch the wheel and weave it back the other way. And I'm moving away from my microphone for effect, I've realised, as I was so into my story, I was leaning <laughs> as the car was weaving across the track. But, yeah. You know, and yet you're doing that at 200 miles an hour. He said he wasn't passing people so much as they were getting out of his way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's uh, that just makes it makes it all the more difficult, I think. And yeah. unfortunately, now we we need to come to to sum up. I feel like I'm on the Apprentice now. Uh, but <laughs> oh, good God, <laughs> the I mean, the, I think one of the things I that's shown that up much orange tanning. Spray. Uh, well, we we have a different host who is uh, who is e- even worse, I think. But um, the I think that the choices that we've made are interesting because one of the things that it shows up is that Le Mans twenty four hours is much more of a was much more of a lottery years ago than it is now. We don't have tortoises and hares. We don't have any of those sorts of things. So it has changed and that has changed the profile, I think, of a typical Le Mans driver, uh, yes. people who perhaps would have been, would not have been successful in the 60s, even the 70s, would probably be successful now. And, and we talked earlier on about that, you know, the, the Gilles Villeneuve is what well, Gilles Villeneuve would probably have been really good now because mm-hmm. put him in an unburstable car and yeah. he would have, he would have been fine. Jim Clark. Um, yeah, I don't think sports cars were his forte. Um, but one of the greatest drivers ever. So he, he sits in there somewhere. Um, he was kind of assimilated by Colin Chapman and that. Chapman wanted to win the things that he wanted to win, mainly in Formula One and at Indianapolis. So Clark was sort of sidelined into there. Would he have been a successful sports car driver, given the choice? Don't know. Sterling Moss, um, he was the first true professional racing driver. Um, Great at Formula One, great as a sports car driver, but he was always put in to be the tortoise and the hare. And I think, Jim, you made the point that he wanted to be the hare because he didn't like driving slowly. And that that probably colours some of the stuff. Uh, Ken Miles was undoubtedly cheated of the 66 victory. I don't think we can rule him out because he actually won. I think that's a bit a bit uncharitable, <laughs> off, but, uh, um, but nonetheless... It's it's uh, still viewed as a great, I think. Mike Conway, uh, again, I think it's difficult to judge because it's really always been Toyota and that Toyota have been through a purple patch of late. Um, now, I'm not saying that you could put anybody in the car and they would be successful because that is untrue. But Mike Conway was in sort of almost 
the right car, the right type of car at the right time. Mario Andretti, yeah, I think I think probably we've we've all come to a conclusion there that he's perhaps a little bit heavy on the car. And Jim's point about uh, trouble for Mario Andretti is certainly not something that we're unu- unused to hearing. It's like uh, like Johnny and Johnny Herbert. I think when he was driving, a lot of people thought that his actual name was Bad Luck Johnny because uh, that was how every every interview started. But Bob Warlick, 30 starts, yeah. Um, the mechanical failures he had were not his fault, that they were, they were things which happened elsewhere, but still, you know, that's motor racing. Fangio, I think still a lot of people who know would say that he was the best Formula One driver of all time. Uh, but... He acknowledged that Sterling Moss was better in sports cars than he was. And Sterling Moss also <laughs> acknowledged that, that Fangio was a better Formula One driver than he was, but that he was better in sports cars. So I think you have to you have to look at that. I think without any doubt, Fangio would have won Le Mans in 1955 if the Mercedes team had not made the decision to pull out from the race at two o'clock in the morning as a result of the the disaster. Um, Thierry, Thierry Bootsen, I'm never going to think about Thierry Bootsen again without thinking about his hair. So thank you, Paul, for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but versatile, yeah. Um, the fact that Le Mans brought his career to an end is uh, is perhaps ironic, but um, he, he sits there. I think versatile all-rounder um, is fairly close to being master of none, you know, jack of all trades. But um, oh. it's uh, I am I am harsh. Um, Joseph, I think arguably the best endurance driver in the John Wire Porsche 917 Golf Team. Um, there are plenty of people who would argue against that, but uh, but Pedro Rodriguez was uh, was incredibly quick, and we've talked about sort of having Gilles Villeneuve in the car, in a car in endurance racing, and I think Pedro Rodriguez was kind of of that ilk, and that it was Josephet who famously said after their side by side through Eau Rouge in the in the pair of nine one sevens. And uh, that afterwards he said that I love I love Pedro to bits. He's a lovely man, but every time he gets into a racing car, the bastard tries to kill me. And, <laughs> and, I, and I think that that kind of sums it up. Vic Elford, quick fake, yeah, I mean, that fabulous all rounder. Um, as has already been said, won the Monte Carlo Rally. He uh, won in sports cars. He raced Formula One. He also won the first ever rallycross race um, in a in a street legal bog standard Porsche 911, and so there's nothing that that man can't do. Nick Manassian, yeah, I mean he's, he's always been there um, and always been there or thereabouts. I love the nomination of Alain de Cadenet. I think that is superb, and that you know I've. I first went to Le Mans in 79 and we all used to, as we said on our, our podcast, our last podcast, uh, 
that everybody will cluster around the circuit PA to listen to the results at five minutes past the hour in English and to hear what had happened for the last 55 minutes that nobody had a clue what was going on. But it was also an expedition and very, very different from what it was now. And it was a, an expedition for the Brits. And everybody loved Alain de Cadenet, that he was the Brit. He had a huge Union Jack on the car. And the, the first one that he, first car he ran was actually called a, a Duckham's rather than a de Cadenet because they put the money up for it. And that with that, he got Gordon Murray to design it. Um, he, Gordon Murray actually cannibalized a Brabham Formula One car, BT44 Formula One car, to produce that. And that, yeah, I'm very much the, um, the explorer, I think, as much as anything. But wow, guys, you've done a brilliant job with this. I think that it's, it's put me in a, in a very, very difficult position. Um, because when all said and done, you've got to look at the right person at the right time, person who had the right luck, the person who didn't make mistakes. And my winner of the greatest driver never to win Le Mans. Bob Wallach. So, uh, so well done, John. Um, that is. That I just is got it. my picks in first. Let's be honest; he would have been on everybody's list. I'm not. I'm not going to take any credit for that one. He would have. This this team here. This this group. Um, if I if I hadn't had first pick, but for being the guest, he would have been on everybody else's first pick. I'm sure. So he, he I, I been, just got even in though first. He's a grumpy interview as well. Cardinals <laughs> <laughs> yeah, power. The least grumpy interview. The most grumpy interview. <laughs> Person yeah, that's uh... smelly. I mean, it, it, we could just we could go on for hours. Strangest <laughs> thing I've tasted in the pit lane. We intend to. Yeah. We intend to. I am uh, I am actually making notes at this point of all these ones. Um, uh, guys, but, thank you very much for letting me be a part of this. I've thoroughly I, I enjoy listening to it and it's it's even more fun when you're <laughs> Well I'm afraid that, that brings to the end the uh, this edition of the Historic Racing News Radio Show. I'd like to thank the HRN team of Joe Bradley, Jim Roller and Paul Jurd, our interviewees, Steve Holter, Martin Warner and Kenny Brack. And especially our guest panelist, John Hindoff. Um Final thoughts on the corridor of power, Jim? Uh, I I can't argue with the pick. I can't argue with the pick. But uh, uh, congratulations to to John. And um, yeah, good, good good one, Paul. Good pick. Good pick. And Joe, any thoughts? Yeah, you, you had to pick one, Paul. I think everybody's all three choices for everyone could have easily have been the choice that you made, and none of us would have disagreed mm. if you'd chosen anyone. And and it's hard to make this even a competition, as as John said quite gracefully. Said, um, you know, it was because he had first pick, and and he's right. I think all of us would have had brilliant Bob on there, wouldn't we? Yeah. Um, but it was a, a great pick. But then again, if you picked any one of our choices it would have been yeah. a great pick they're all great fantastic characters and fantastic drivers 
I think you're right. And, and Paul, I mean, you're uh, you're happy with the uh, with what you put forward and and the choice. Oh, I think I think exactly so. And Joe just used the phrase "brilliant Bob," which I think it was actually Bob Constantouris came up with for Bob Wallach, and it was just used generally, and no one ever commented on it because it fitted. So yeah, worthy winner. Mm. You know, the one thing that has really stood out to me while we've been doing this and when Paul first asked me to think about this and I went through and I had a, I had a list of about, I think I had <laughs> nine or ten. And, and then when you do a bit more looking and researching, you go, oh, oh, yes. And, and he was a co-driver to him <laughs> and he should be on the list as well. And, yeah. and what you know what it shows? What an exclusive group. Le Mans winners are. Mm. There are so many good drivers, so many good drivers who, for the want of a a, a thirty p or a fifty cent washer, could have won mm. Le Mans. Katy Yama, you know, all of these people who yeah. could have won Le Mans, and it's an exclusive group. And anybody that tells you that it's getting easier to win Le Mans, that's just not true. It's still. It is still a race that you can't buy. And you have to have some look. Ask Mike Conway. Ask Mike Conway, John. That was a great choice. Um, Great choice. You you kind of buy it. You need a bit of luck. And, you know, even when it appears you've got no competition, you've got the two biggest competitions ever. And that's the racetrack itself at Le Mans and time. And that's what you always have with Le Mans. Thank you all very much indeed. My name is Paul Tarsi, and I hope you've enjoyed the show. As always, ladies and gentlemen, if you have been, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.